Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor LLC, and I am very, very happy to share this hour with you where we examine those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now, those of you who've been listening for a while know that Somewhere in the Middle is intended to be a safe place where we can learn and grow together. And we discuss a variety of topics ranging from love to politics to money and business and beyond. And that is because the human experience is wide and varied. Now, you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows exploring life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and we've grown onto our own platform, but we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I also want to give a shout out to my guest on the December 7th show, Kendall Weaver. You can connect with Kendall at Billion Dollar Kendall on Instagram and all the other likely social media suspects. Make sure you reach out to her. If you miss that show, you want to listen to the replay. Kendall shared her transformation from a single teen mom growing up in poverty to a successful financial strategist. You can get to the replay by visiting Somewhere in the Middle at bit.ly, B-I-T slash Somewhere in the Middle Radio and checking out the on-demand shows. You can also find our complete show archives, including the December 7, 2018 show at bit.ly, B-I-T slash Somewhere in the Middle Podcast. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. And you guys know I think this is a really important message to share with the youth in particular. But it's not just for the kids, guys. It is also for us. Sometimes we forget that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. I'm also really excited to announce that we're going to be switching things up a little in 2019 with a slightly different format. We're going to switch things up in terms of how we do the show and when we air. So please keep your ears open. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more at a later date. Now, tonight, I'm really excited to introduce Gerald Hoover. And some of you may already know him because of his writing. Gerald Hoover is an adjunct professor at Long Island University, Brooklyn, where he teaches sport communication and sport management. Gerald has had teaching stints at the Korean American Heritage Foundation, where he taught English to Korean-born students visiting the United States, and at the renowned Eagle Academy for Boys, where he also taught English. He is editor-in-chief and senior writer at Pure Sports New York. 
Gerald has been a sports writer for over 17 years and has covered the New York Knicks and New Jersey slash Brooklyn Nets for Black Athletes Sports Network, The Network Journal, Sport New York Style, and Bustasports.com. Gerald is also an award-winning novelist and filmmaker. So I would like to welcome Gerald Hoover to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Thank you, Gerald, for being on the show with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. Well, I'm excited to have you, and I would like to learn a lot about what you're doing. And the way that I do that is I start my interviews with two questions, and if you're ready, I will ask you those two questions. I'm ready when you are. Okay. So my questions are, Gerald Hoover, who are you? And how did you become who you are today? Uh, well, I became who I am by God's grace. Uh, that's that's for sure that I'm still here. Um, who am I? Well, presently, um, I write. I'm a writer. Uh, I love young people. Uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a site director for a um, up-and-coming uh, as-a-school program called New York Edge, where I live. I live in New York. Uh, I'm a musician. I've been playing trombone in my church for 46 years now. Um, I'm a motivational speaker. Uh, I'm really proud of that one because I grew up with a speech impediment. I stuttered, and I still and I still stutter. But for some reason, uh, whenever I'm on radio, I've been blessed to be on radio several times. I've been on television, you know, a few times, and I speak in front of an audience, but I stutter. So if you talk to me one on one. You may hear me stutter quite a bit, but for some reason, when I get, when I get into a certain element, I don't stutter, and I'm able to speak as I, I, I kind of kid Jesse Jackson with it. I said I sound like Jesse Jackson when I'm talking. You know what I mean? I, I can get up there and just go. And uh, but again, and, and it was so funny. I never forget. I, I was um, celebrated I, at a school in North Virginia several years ago, and I remember it was Cole Elementary School in North Virginia, and they had the news cameras come out, and um, I spoke about maybe 200 kids. They brought them into shifts, right? And um, I had two of my buddies that live in Virginia. They were, and they know me as Gerald Hoover, a stutterer. I mean, you know, they they, they just know me. I talk fast. I'm from New York, you know, I, the, the, the whole bit. Mm-hmm. I can remember seeing them in the corner of my eye while I'm, while I'm addressing the camera and the kids. Because, you know, when the camera was to my left, the kids were sort of right in front of me, and he was, and the, my buddies were on the right, and I could see them, you know, in my peripheral, and they're looking at me with their mouths draped open. They were standing in the back, but they, they were looking at me with their mouths draped open, like, how is he doing that? I mean, you know, and I could imagine what they were feeling too, because I probably would be the same way. But they, they were like, how is he doing that? And it was, it was amazing. Until this day, I did, this happened like in 2009. My, my buddy still teased me about that. It was like, Gerald, Gerald, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? I mean, you don't stutter. <laughs> you, don't stutter you only stutter when you feel like it. So. But one of the things that I love to, to even talk to young people about when I, when I do speak to them, and I, I'm a motivational speaker mainly in the school systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't ventured out you know, to do any much else, but I do a lot of schools throughout the years. And um, but one of the things I like to tell them is about when you get to a, a wall, you know, and it may seem to be insurmountable to get over it, 
you remember that you can, if you want to get to the other side, you got to figure out whether or not you want to go through the wall, dig your way under it, dig it uh, figure out a tunnel, or go over the wall, or break through it. If there's something, if you want to get to the other side, that's something you have to figure out. And I guess with me, with the stuttering, I want, I want to go, I want to break through the wall. And I had to learn, uh, I had to buy, uh, do self-taught, self-teaching how to slow down and how to enunciate words to where I could speak. But the first thing I had to do was get my confidence level up because talking in front of a crowd is more of a confidence thing than anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, because even the person who, don't, who doesn't stutter at all, get in front of a crowd and forget about it, they would just freeze up. So I had to make sure that, and I think what helped me too, because I kept getting visions in my head, even though I was going through my rejection and, you know, throughout the, throughout the, the, the time, um, of me getting before I got published, I, I, I kept having visions in my head that I would be in front of a crowd speaking. And the vision never scared me. It never scared me. It, I embraced the vision. And so when it happened, I was ready for it, even though I was a stutterer. You know what I mean? And so, and once I got to a point to where I, I was getting standing ovations and I see the crowd was receptive to me. And I mean, I remember one year I did 12 keynote speaking and uh for, for speaking the i'm stuttering now right i love it, it because i stutter every now and then but i did 12 speaking engagements as a keynote speaker for graduations and they i was putting in front of a, uh, maybe three or four hundred people at a time because it was different schools mm-hmm. and i had to speak on an auditorium in an auditorium on a stage on a microphone at a podium and 90% of the people that was there, I didn't want that, maybe 70 people I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know them because I was basically there for the children. The children brought parents and, and friends and family. So I, I'm in packed auditoriums speaking to people I, don't, I didn't know, but I was still talking. And I worked out. I worked it out. But one of the things I did, and I had to, I had to share this, was I said to myself, if I stutter, this is where my confidence grew. If I stutter, if they laugh, laugh with them. And once I got over that fear, I was so okay. Yeah, I said okay, I can do it. You know, because I, because I, I know in show business they, they used to say, well, if you get scared when you're on stage, just imagine. Um, what do they say? Imagine the audience in 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 their underwear. I'm like, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so so, so I'm like, I ain't doing that part. But um, but when, when I was able to just say. And I actually said this to an audience because uh, I remember my first speaking uh, engagement. I was at a middle school in Brooklyn. I mean, the audience, the, it was, the, these, these were just kids, though. But it was, it was about 400 kids in, in the auditorium. And I was trying to read a speech. And I could see dead silence. I mean, I didn't just, I mean, I could, and I, I didn't just hear it. I could see it. Like, mm-hmm. you're losing your audience because you're trying to, now I'm, I was the writer, so I'm trying to read something that was going to try to be effective. And it did not work. So I said, you know what? I'm going to put this paper. I, I actually bought the paper while I was talking. I said, look, everybody, I stutter. But I basically just, I let it out. I said, I stutter. And so it was easy for me to read it without stuttering. But if you guys decide to laugh, if I do stutter, then what I'm going to do is laugh with you. And once I did that, it was, it was, it was, it was all she wrote. I was able to really just, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I, got, a, I got an ovation after I spoke. And then I knew, okay, you you got something going now. 
Well, you know, there are a few things that you said that kind of strike me. One of them was about you had this vision in your head of yourself speaking in front of crowds and you embraced that vision. You didn't let yourself be frightened by it. And there's a lot to be said about visualizing what you want for yourself in the future. They say that Michael Phelps would Mm -hmm. visualize each of his races. You know, they said that he would visualize each of his races when he was um, getting ready to, you know, do do his swimming, right? They said that Phil Jackson, you know, had the winningest uh, Chicago Bulls team in the in the 90s right he used to have the team visualize uh the game and how they wanted to play and how they wanted things to play out so it sounds Mm -hmm. like you kind of had that vision similar to some of these world winners these world champions right sure yeah yeah and and I, i think believe it or not michelle that's what kept me going even though i was getting rejected you know, because now I didn't tell you this part. When I first wrote the book, I didn't have a typewriter. Not not no such a typewriter in that computer. Good, because I started in the eighties. <laughs> this was in the eighties, right? This is eighty three. No typewriter, and you definitely wouldn't have a computer in, back in those days. Because it's funny, I I I laugh at myself, and the kids get a kick out of it. And it's, you know, with students, students that I speak to, I say when I started writing, when I say typewriter, and, and I and I I mentioned about computer. I said, well, I grew up in the projects. If we had a computer in our house, it would have been called like a data processor, and it would probably would have it would have been as big as a refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they laugh at that. I'm like, you guys have it on your phone. You got Word on on your phone. You have. Uh, laptops and and yeah. and tablets and all kinds of goodies that 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 you guys have. I said I didn't have anything, and I said I had to write. I wrote the first. And, you know, the good thing about this, Michelle, that this is all true. It's well documented, and you can ask anybody in my family, especially my mother. And newspapers have documented this when I was in the papers, like back in the nineties. I wrote the first nine drafts by hand. Mm-hmm. I'm literally from from cover to cover, and I have over thirty thousand words. From cover to cover, I wrote by hand. And literally, I would uh, I had calluses or blisters in my fingers because I wrote with pencil, and I, I and I and I carry I, I hold the pencil incorrectly, uh-huh. so I was um you know doing best I could. But then you're getting writer's cramp. Well, not writer's cramp, but I'm you're getting cramped fingers because you're, you're still writing. And then literally, I would write and uh, uh, and a spiral notebook and and fill it button page, button back, and I had an older cousin, or still do, he's still alive, an uh, older cousin that was um, checking my stuff. You know, he would edit it. And it, w- it was funny, I think about it now, when he was editing it, sometimes he would put a postage note, you know, where I had to fix something, right. and he'd write, write in it, or it was something long, like he like he really was giving me the business. <laughs> he would have, We would have to staple you know, like if you put if you put like a loose notebook a piece of paper and it was like a, like ten ten to fifteen sentences that he was fixing up on there, we would staple that, right? So between post-it notes and and notes on the side and all that kind of good stuff, that spiral notebook would kind of almost double in size. Yeah, I mean literally. And then and then I would buy then I would buy Michelle. Like did you not? Then I would buy a new notebook and go back, and I would write 
my stuff and then I'll write his stuff that he incorporated. And when I think about it, I say to myself, how in the world did I do that? (laughs) And, 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 and and I, and I literally, there were times when, especially, well, you're out in California, right? So, well, well, if you're you're in a good part of California where it's always sunny and so forth, uh, just imagine being in New York in the winter then you have nice weather. Usually you just want to break loose and just, you know, go crazy, you know, but there were times when we had Christmas break, Easter break, summer break, you know, or, or spring break. And we had, you know, good weather, 85, 90 degrees. I'm in the house or I'm in the library. Or I was like on the weekend, weekend I would go to the library and go from, I'd go there at nine o'clock when it opened and I would leave at six. I would come home, eat. And then I'll go back to, back to writing around eight, eight thirty. And then I would go from eight thirty to about two o'clock in the morning. Wow! And, uh, or, yeah, and I would, go, I would go to the library just because, even though it was quiet, you know, you had to be quiet. But I, I felt, I felt energy, I felt synergy with other people reading and doing things of that nature. And then me being around books helped me because I'm like, I want to be here one day. You know, I want my book to be in this library one day. I want to be published one day, like these other authors. So being in the library kind of helped my mental psyche. Right. And but. But now, once I finally got a typewriter, again, typewriter, you know, I had the correct type. So, and then I had, you know, it was funny. I also used to writing. I had to learn how to type, okay? And I couldn't type that well. So, my typing was shoddy. <laughs> I was typing with two or three fingers and, and so forth. And, and so, I had to learn how to type. I, had to take a, I took a typing course in my school so I can, you know, learn how to type. But I typed really slow. So, that was a real uh, crazy process. Then I was typing in double space so that, you know, that, that was the rule when you're writing the manuscript. So, I had to learn I had to learn that whole thing over again. And then once I started getting it to where my cousin felt comfortable, you know, in a typewritten world to, to send it out to publishers, I started sending it out. That's when that's when the rejection started. I mean, so, I mean, rejection after rejection after rejection. So talk about that. What what is it like? What was it like for you as as this aspiring author to be rejected? How many times were you rejected? Uh, over a nine year period, forty two. Wow. Yeah, forty two times. What did that over feel like? Uh, the first time I got rejected, I got I was shocked. Uh, because the letter that was written was like, dear Mr. Over, um, thank you for, you know, my friend right here over, and and I guess the funniest thing was, well, it's funny now, the first two paragraphs was, were just glowing with praise and accolades and all kind of stuff. They would tell me how, how timely the book was. It would give me all kinds of good stuff. And then that third paragraph, when, when, yeah, unfortunately, comma, or when I started getting unfortunately, comma, or however, therefore, comma, or, you know, just consequently, I mean, you, you get those kind of words, comma next to it, yet no, is not going to be good news. So the first time I got, because it was funny, when I sent off, this is funny, if I ever meet him one day, I'm going to tell her this, when I sent this book off the first time, I was making plans to be on Oprah. You know, <laughs> in six months, you know, because I just knew it was going to be published. Because I, I mean, people who read the manuscript and everything loved it. You know, from teachers to just you know, matter of fact, I, my cousin actually had a Harvard a Harvard professor read it, wow. and was, was 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 and was in love with the manuscript. So the key to it was getting it published. Now, what I started getting 
what I started getting was great book, timely, this and the third. And then I always kept saying, unfortunately, it's not right for our list. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not right for our list. I kept, I kept saying, I'm unfortunate, right for our list. So I'm like, what is this list? Now, of course, we didn't have computers back then, so I had no way of vetting it. I'm like, what is this list? Right. And, and every publisher, every publisher was saying that. Now, mind you, when I, when I was rejected over 42 times, it wasn't just publishers. It was publishers, agents, editors. Right. So agents were rejecting me, editors were rejecting me, and publishers. So I was rejected 42 times from everybody, okay? <laughs> but, 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 but I'm trying to hear, like, what is this list? Mm-hmm. And so one day, I'll never forget it, I said, let me go to a bookstore. Now, I lived in Mount Vernon, so the nearest bookstore that I knew of was, was in a place called White Plains, which was about... I was right on the bus, mm-hmm. so I, was, I wasn't driving. So I got on the bus. It's about, it's about maybe twelve miles, but I went upstate, so to speak, and um, I went to a B Dalton, and I went inside, and I basically was was, was patrolling the bookstore like I was a, like I was a security guard because you know, mm-hmm. I was just walking around. You know what I mean? And right. then I went. I was walking to see who was who was coming and buying books, and so I went into the young adult section, all right, and I'm looking at the bookshelf. And I remember seeing only one book with my color face on it. Oh. And that was from that was from the late Ossie Davis. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called Just Just Like Martin. Yeah. And I remember I remember getting that book and I'm like, Whoa. They don't think black people read the first the first thing that came to my mind was they don't think black people are gonna read this book. But right. then I'm like, this book isn't just for black people. It's written by a black man sharing a black experience, you know, if you will. But this is not a black book per se, you know, just for black people, especially with the message that 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 it contained. So I said, okay. So I took it rejected. So then I decided to put essay questions and topics of discussion in the back of the book. Mm-hmm. I said, well, okay. What I'm going to do is, when I have this thing published. Because you remember back in those days, self-publishing was like uh, self-publishing was frowned upon the same way getting an online degree used to be frowned upon. Right. Now, now you get an online now now you get an online degree, you could be a CEO of a company. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So and now you now you publish online. I mean, self-publish if you do it the right way with a good with a good editing and you know and, and make the good book readable, you can make a million dollars. You right. know what I mean? You you could do it, you could you could do it the way you wanted to. So but back in those days, you know, self-publishing first it was a lot. It was it was crazy expensive to do it anyway. So that that wasn't really an option. But I said to myself, I said if this ever gets published well what's, what's that saying or that muhammad said if you can't go to the mountain being the mountain to you mm-hmm. so i said well if i can't bring now nah, it was another thing okay when i was at bookstores i was trying to see who was coming in i didn't see young black boys and black girls coming to bookstores to buy books but i didn't see other people coming in either and when i did see young people coming to buy books they were with their parents like a few uh caucasian you know, uh, girls came in but they were with their moms and they bought like Nancy Drew or highlights, stuff like that. But so, but that was just, and I, and I stayed, I stayed in the bookstore for like hours. I literally, you would, you would thought I was, I was a security guard. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see what was going on, but nobody, nobody was really buying books anyway. And so my mindset is my, my, my it, it still is. Okay. Young people are in where they're in schools, they're in community based organizations and they're in churches. Okay. 
if that if that if that's where you have to go get them, go get them because now my book doesn't have no inward stuff in there. It's not it's not scuttery. Uh, there's no curses at all. Uh, there's nothing illicit, you know, nothing overly sexual or anything like that. It's about young people growing up, but I just did it in a clean but impactful way. And so I knew I can get into a church. I learned if I know the pastor or the deacon or somebody else that has, you know, that can do certain things. So I've been invited to churches, uh, schools was my main market and still is. And then, you know, CBOs, you know, community-based organizations, you know, latch onto them. And so I found a market despite the fact that they said there was no market for it. And once I did that, Michelle, I kid you not, it's been a powerful journey ever since then, because then I knew because when I started getting parents or the kids themselves, especially parents, do I have time to tell the story? Well, quick, I wanna, quick story? Yeah, yeah, but I want to ask you to tell us about the message sure. of the book, too. To get sure, sure. To uh, right. What the book is about. You got it. All right. Uh, my, my book was, was great when, well, great read was when a parent told me, um, she said, Mr. Hoover, um, thank you for I'm writing your book. My son, you know, enjoyed your book. And I said, thank you. Well, very much to tell your son, you know, I'm glad he loved it. And she said, no, you don't understand. My son doesn't like to read. I said, okay. She said, but he couldn't put your book down. And she said, one night, and this happened about maybe 10 or 15 years ago. She said, one night I told him to go to bed. It was about 9.30. And and, and he was like, Mom, Mom can I, I'm over, I mean, I'm, I'm loving this book. I want to just finish, you know, the next chapter. Can I, can I finish reading? Now, she was at a, she was at a crossroads because she was like, well, he needs to go to bed. But she's like, well, he doesn't like reading, but he can put this book down, so maybe I should, you know, allow him to do it. So she said, okay, 15 more minutes, then you better put the book down. And, you know, you know, and go to sleep. She, so she said, okay. He said, okay, Mom, thank you. She goes back, I guess, in the living room and do what she's doing, and she figured that she would come and check on him in about a half hour to make sure that he's in, he's sleeping and he's comfortable and everything. She goes and she's walking toward the room, and she sees that the room is dark, but she goes to the back room and says, okay, you know, I guess tuck him in, whatever she, she wanted to do. This joker has a blanket <laughs> over him with a flashlight, <laughs> with a flashlight reading the book. I was like, you know what? Mission accomplished. That's you got people who don't like reading the book, reading books to read your book, and, I, and I've been hearing that ever since. That's from right. students, from kids themselves, to parents. So I'm sorry, you, you had a question. I'm sorry about that. No, no, no. That's wonderful. So tell us about the book. What is the book about? Well, okay, uh, it's, a, it's a book about a fictional character by the name of Bennett Wilson and his buddy Kirby. And they're growing up in the town, Mount Vernon, where I live, where, where I'm from. And I made Bennett a star basketball player. And Kirby, who was his buddy, not, he's not very good, but that's his, but they're, they're best friends. Now, the word, uh, the, the, the title was called My Friend, My Hero. But the way I, I structured their friendship was if you're reading a book, you know, especially at the end, who was really the friend and who was the hero because they're sort of intertwined because it's a story about friendship, making choices, struggle, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, going through it all, and then seeing where you, you know, you, you kind of come out at. And so it's, it's, sort of a, it's, sort of, it's sort of like a Job test, if you, you know, if you, you know about the story of Job, mm-hmm. but it's also a story about dealing with peer pressure, uh, now I didn't know anything about social emotional development back then because that that wasn't what it was about. But I put a little bit of that in there. So so what started out as a anti drug message 
end up being some about everything. You know, it's even, it's even, I even touched on teen suicide a little bit. And so there were so many different things that are, are captured in 150 pages, six by nine, you know, that it, it, it even shocked me. But my main purpose, Michelle, was I wanted to help save a life. Right. Now, I want to entertain you. I want to entertain you, but I want to save a life. And I think even though I kept getting rejected, 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 I, that is what drove me. It wasn't so much wanting to become a millionaire. Now, of course, I, I still want to become a millionaire, no question. But but that wasn't the driving factor because I still kept jobs. I, you know, I, sometimes, sometimes I even worked two jobs, so I, I've always worked. But my, my premise in writing this book was to help save a life. And so with the message being... Um, you know, like an anti-drug message that turned into life choices, peer pressure, and, and stuff like that. But that's why I have the topic of discussion at the end. What happened from there was I developed what's called the Hero Book Series. Okay. And I love that because, well, all four, it's four books. It's four books. The first book is My Friend, My Hero, which is out now. The second one is He Was My Hero 2, and it's T-O-O. The third book is A Hopeful Hero. And the fourth book is Hoop hero, and again, you notice all the work. And, I, and this, this is what I love. When I'm talking to the, to the students in schools, and I, and, I, and I ask the question, "What is the what is the what is the common word in each title?" And of course, they all hit hero. I said, and the reason why I did that's because this is not talking about a star athlete on television or a movie star or, or, or entertainer. This is about young men and women in their neighborhood, and. And, and and I did that on purpose. So it was by design, and that is why I call it the Hero Book Series because each title represents heroism within yourselves. And my premise is, if these young men and women that read this book or even talk about this book can can learn to see themselves as heroes, and it doesn't mean that you're going to be arrogant or conceited or have a big head. It's going to mean that you have self-esteem. You know that you can do anything you want to do if you put the work and time in. Now, mind you, I got rejected 42 times. So the average person probably would have stopped after three, <laughs> but I couldn't. I knew my purpose was to write this book. Because I, I, I felt like, because I heard this, somebody else said this, I didn't necessarily chose to write the book. It chose me. And uh, I think I remember saying this before. Uh, I remember being on a basketball court playing basketball and like I said I wrote I wrote this speech and I needed something to do with the speech. I remember playing I was playing basketball and I had like a Moses moment. I had a it was something that spoke to me like like I'm like you hear my voice now. It was create this character Bennett and make Bennett the basketball player. I mean, I mean it was I mean I'm playing basketball and I basically kinda of had to stop <laughs> you know my tracks like why am I getting this premonition while I'm playing basketball? And 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 it, it came to me and it, it was like in mid July and it came to me and and it stayed on me. It, man, this, this, this is this is in um eighty three. It stayed with me, Michelle, and it wouldn't stop. And so wow. I finally I finally got the nerve in October to start putting pen to paper. Now, what's what's amazing is that I had a writing gift. I have a writing gift, but I wasn't always a reader. So going throughout life, and, and I kid you not, from kindergarten to 12th grade, I really hadn't read like one book cover to cover. Now, I don't mean third grade when you read them 25-page 25, 25, uh, books. I'm talking about like I hadn't read a novel. And even when 
say ninth grade on up when a teacher would assign a book report. You know, all I had to do sometimes, like say it was Roots or something like that or whatever, the Malcolm X, whatever, I could just open up a um, open up the book and, and then read the liner notes and come up with a, a two-page book report and get an A. Right. With no problem. I, I mean, I was such a good writer. Some, sometimes I, I never forget when my, my buddies, you know, they had girlfriends. They were like, hey, you know, Jerry, I can't write, you know, but I want to say this song. So I write the letter for him, give it to him, and boom. <laughs> so I, I was getting guys' girlfriends to <laughs> me and do my writing. And, uh, uh, so, I, I mean, writing just came, came to me so naturally, but I didn't read. Mm-hmm. And when I when, and so even though I had this premonition after I wrote the speech to do this book, I hadn't read a book. Okay, and now I'm gonna tell you what's so funny how life is. I said to myself, I said, "Wow, I'm not gonna read a book, and I'm gonna write, and I'm gonna write one, and I'm gonna brag about that." Now, Michelle, that sounds awkwardly stupid when you think about it as an adult. As an adult, I mean, I'm gonna get, that, that, that's almost like saying to yourself, going on TV saying. Hi, come to my restaurant. I'm a great chef, but guess what? I don't like to eat food. You know, it's like, well, you don't eat. Why am I coming to your restaurant? You know. And so, long story short, my cousin read the one that that did the editing. He read my draft, my first draft that I wrote by hand. And I, I don't know what he saw as far as promise, but I thank God he did. What I thought when I thought he was gonna give me like glowing remarks, telling me, man, you're gonna be the next great writer, this and the third. Man, this man gave me the business. I mean, I thought he was going I, I, I literally was crying. He, he was over the phone. He didn't call me stupid because you know I wasn't stupid. But he was like, at the end of the day, boy, you don't read. You don't read. And I told him, I said, well, I read the Bible and, and I read newspapers, you know, because I, I love sports and I went mm-hmm. to church. He said, that's great if you're going to be a journalist or a preacher. Now, mind you, it's funny. I became a deacon in my church where I teach Sunday school. And I became a sports journalist. When I covered the Knicks and the Nets for 20 years, so that 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 was kind of weird. That, but he, he when he when he mentioned that back then in 1983, that wasn't an option then, but it, it ended up becoming one. But when he said, "Look, I'm taking this manuscript from you, and you got to read five books before I give it back to you," and I'm like, five books? I'm like, sure, I haven't read one. And, you know, and, and long story short, I ended up reading. I ended up getting those five books, and after I read the first book, which was uh, Miss Jane Pittman, I never forget that was the first one. Once I did that, the bug was on. I, 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 I mean, writing books was to, to me. I mean, reading books was just something I had to do. That's wonderful. That's wonderful, and it's, you know, it's really inspirational because there are so many kids who don't get turned on to reading right away. Yeah. And you know, you tend to worry about them. You know, because yeah. You you know that's really a foundational skill as far as your education is concerned. But it just goes to show that you can get turned on to reading at any point and just natural talent and natural skill alone isn't always going to do it right well, well question and, and i'm gonna tell you it's funny because i read the benefits and i will tell you how to google it the benefits of reading and they are powerful from stress relief focus concentration self-esteem i mean reading does a lot and, and i'll say this it should not take and I mean this for anybody that's listening, it should not take us brothers and sisters to be incarcerated to read a book, whether whether incarcerated or confined before you read a book. It shouldn't take that. You know what I mean? I know what I did when I was younger, but I saw also the damage that it can do if you don't read. Now, what happens is when young men don't read, there's certain things that, I believe from a neurology, I'm going to say it wrong, but from a neurology standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, 
no, no, no logical standpoint that you don't benefit from. It's almost like an athlete that doesn't that doesn't work out. Right. There's certain things that there's certain things that aren't going to work properly if you don't read because there's certain muscles that are exercised by reading and writing that you don't get just by watching television. Right. You know what I mean? Now, now, now I, I can say to myself, I, I want to get in shape, but yeah, if I turn on the exercise channel with the remote and I'm sitting on the couch, I ain't going to get in shape. <laughs> I'm going to watch it, but I'm not going to get in shape. <laughs> so so, so if, if you start reading, there's certain things. Now, mind you, if you start reading a lot, at first you're going to get sleepy. So it's it's going to happen. But that's because you have to exercise your brain muscles. But the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And the more you're going to be able to learn and be able to catch things quicker when things are taught. And because I really believe that a lot of this ADHD, and, and I'm not gonna go on a tangent here, but a lot of this ADHD and whatnot would not be so if parents would not give their children these little devices to play with eight nine hours a day. And I think when that when it happens, or or you set them too close to a flat screen TV with all them bright colors, even if it's a cartoon, that's not good for them because when they, when they, when they need to sit down in a classroom, they can't sit because the, the mind is too stimulated. And I, and I really believe that if young men and women would read more, if they can, I'll never forget my, my, one of my, I'm also an adjunct professor at a local college. I'll never forget my boss, who was, I loved it, wonderful man. He said to me, he said, Professor Hoover, if young people realize that if they can read and write, they can go get a job anywhere. And if you think about it, Michelle, when he said that, I said, you know, you're right. Because if you can read and write, you can go to a job and work in a mail room at first and figure out certain things. And then, you know what? You can create a job on the 10th floor, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. You have to stay in the mail room all, all your life. Yeah. You know, you can do things. You can do things. If you can read and write, you can figure things out to where you can invent things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, let me ask you some other questions about the book because I understand that you've got a curriculum you're developing. Yes, a yes. Play a stage yes. play. You've got a lot of stuff uh, going on with this book. Hey, hey, listen, this job is—I mean, this book has helped me get jobs that I wasn't qualified for. This, you know, and it was funny because for a long time I only had one book out, but that—but the problem was finding a publisher that would stay in business long enough for me to do more. Mm-hmm. Because now, mind you, every publisher that I had, and they would tell you make money off of me, because the way I, well, I was selling to schools, Michelle. So I was. This book has got me. It's, it's taken me to China, Belize. Uh, Beijing, I'm not talking about China, uh, Dominican Republic. I've, I've been, I've been places all over the country, all over the world from this book. So I was doing things with it. And so when I thought about it, I, you know, I was like, put people, when people read it, especially in the past, it was like, man, you, can, you should give a thing to Spike. And I'm like, well, I know Spike. Spike is a good guy, good guy. I mean, I know him a little bit. I'm like, oh, Spike's language is a little deep. So I'm like, I, I don't have any, I can't, I can't give my book and say, I can't give my book and say, you know, write it, but don't put, Profanity in it. You gonna tell me? Well, take your book and do, do what you want to do with it. So, <laughs> I, what I what I what, so what I did was I took a screenwriting course, mm-hmm. and I, I and I wrote it myself as as, as a as a screenplay. And uh, I never forget a few years ago, a eighth grade middle school used it used it and did a stage play from it. And then with the curriculum, because the, there's so many different messages in it, I'm like, wow, there's certain things that can be done with this as a curriculum. And so I came up with a curriculum. Now, a curriculum that I did at first 
wasn't as strong as it should be. So what I did was being smart, Michelle, I hired a curriculum specialist. Yeah. Do what you have to do with it. And I let them know what I want. And, you know, they, they put the, the necessary common core or whatever elements that, that need to be with, you know, in it to, the right way to make it work. And um, so I want to have a, I want to have, I want to have a curriculum stage play. Um, I'm going I'm to have it um, translated into Spanish and probably French, both the book and the curriculum. And so the messages that these young men and women can get from reading the book, and also it's culturally relevant. Whereas, again, when you give in, when you, when, I guess when kids, we're trying to get students to read, they should have something that, that that's going to speak to them. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be ghetto. I'm not talking about ghetto. I'm talking about like, you know, every, well, I, I, well, in other words, it needs to be culturally relevant. You know, everybody doesn't have a picket fence, so you can't just right. give them books with picket fences on it. You know, you have to be relevant with them. Now, it, it doesn't mean that you, you got to see a book with a with a hypodermic needle on the floor either, but you just have to speak to the to the young men and women where they are. If you want to get them, it, it, I guess it's almost like um, if you're trying to set, set up a burger shop in a vegetarian neighborhood, <laughs> chances are you're not, not going to be that successful. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So, so. You know, if you give the young men and women something that they can read, at least to start them off with, then they'll, as they, as they become fond of reading, then they'll make choices with themselves of what they want to read back, you know, but after they become readers and they're successful in that journey. But if you don't give them anything to read, they won't read. And and, and it will be that kind of a problem. And so we, we see, Michelle, if you don't read, you're not going to be that, that, that successful, not unless you're very good with your hands or you're an athlete. But even in that, I, I tell young men and women when they say when they, they want to be rappers and, and, and artists and entertainers and, 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 and athletes, if you cannot read your contract, you're going to have a problem. Yes. Even if you can't read like a lawyer, but even if, we, even if you can read something basic on it, you're good. Now, just think about this. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, this young man named Kevin Garnett. Now, I'm not saying he's ignorant, not not by a long shot, mm-hmm. but he grossed over he grossed over three hundred million dollars playing in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he had gotten messed up with his uh, no something happened with his his attorney at the time uh, stole eighty million dollars from him. Wow. And this 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 has happened a couple of months ago. You can Google him as Kevin Garnett. You you can Google him. That that so again, if our young men and women cannot read and write, certain things like that will happen. I mean, you know what I mean. If anybody knows the story about Joe Lewis, Joe Lewis was one of the best boxers that that this world has ever known. He did he couldn't read and write at the time, and his people, his handlers, stole his money. Right. Yes, you know? it is vital vital to be able to protect yourself if nothing else. Definitely. No question. So you're celebrating 25 years in print. This is your sixth edition. Where can people get your book? Oh, sure. They, they can get it on Amazon. Uh, they can get it on Barnes and Noble, and they can get it on. I believe it's an indie. Is it indie? Uh, IndieBooks.org. So, 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 the, so you can find it. Uh, uh, but uh, Amazon is my main publishing source, and they can get it on and Barnes and Noble, and get it in Barnes and Noble. And, and I, I, have a, I, I, have, I have a website that I'm working on. Um, the website is called theherobookseries.com. Mm-hmm. So right now it's under construction, but I will say, I will say within a few weeks or so it, it'll be up. So we're doing we're putting some things together now for us. So it's called theherobookseries.com. And I really believe, Michelle, that everybody has a hero in them. 
and they and the hero doesn't mean you have to be famous, you, know, you have to be rich or anything like that. If you're going to going to work, going to school, and doing things the right way, that's heroic. You know what I mean? Especially in this day and time, you know, it's heroic. And, and our young people really need this because what I I don't want to happen as as a black man, I'm a black man, where in 20 years, if this earth is still in existence, that our young sisters don't have anybody to marry. You know what I mean? Because too many of us, too many of us are going to jail, and too many, too many, too many of us are dying. And it's not always, it's not always situations outside the race that's killing us. It's black on black crime, which is just heinous. At you know, at the thought of it. And sometimes, and I realize this, you know, just my in my travels, the crime, Michelle, is not always uh, gun violence. Sometimes we kill each other when you get Johnny who is carrying books and trying to do certain things, you know, within himself as a, as an academia. Then you may get shoe shoe that look at him and say, oh, "Why are you trying to act white?" You know, you, you'll, you'll get you'll get people that, that say that. Now, if you got somebody that's saying stuff like that, they you, know, uh, you got people that are doing that and saying stuff like that. Then, yeah, he's, what kind of confidence is that person going to have? You know what I mean? And and, and so you kill, you kill a person just with your, with your words saying something like that, or you're trying to act white, which means you look at yourself as a black man and think that you can't speak properly. Or you can't read, you can't you can't write. You're not supposed to do things. That's uh, that's bad. You know, I don't know if that's trauma or or, or, or what Willie Lynch. You know, you know his spirit is living in the hearts of people. That that that's not good. And so that mindset has to change as well. So Gerald, tell us where can people connect with you? Can they connect you? Do you have a website? Do you have um, social media? How can people connect with you? Yes, uh, uh, on Twitter, I have two. Um, uh, t- Twitter, I'm, I wanted, I'm going to develop the the Hero Book series. Going to develop that, and also with uh, Gerald Hoover Books and Sports. And it's Gerald Hoover spelled with a J. Um, I'm on Facebook, um, on LinkedIn, and um, the website again is called theherobookseries.com, and it, it'll be it'll be up and running in about about two weeks. Awesome. Awesome. Gerald, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're going to take a quick break for an announcement, and then we'll be back for a chat with Julia Black in our new segment, True Talk. Hey guys, it's me, Michelle Berard, host of Somewhere in the Middle and founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor, LLC. Are you feeling like you're stuck and can't move forward? Have you been struggling to birth a big goal like a book or a business? Are you feeling overwhelmed and looking to make changes in your career? If you're at all like me, when that deer in headlights feeling hits you, you just don't know where to begin. Yeah, you can talk with friends or family, But when you're in need of an objective opinion, it helps to speak with someone who's prepared to listen and to provide practical guidance to help you move forward. That's where a coach comes in. That's why I'm so excited to share with you that energy worker and coach Julia Black and I have teamed up to help you get unstuck and start moving towards your goals again. And to make it easy for you, 
We're offering a complimentary call with one of us to help you start moving forward. All you have to do is go to WeRiseMovement.com to schedule your free insight and inspiration call with either Julia or me. The insight and inspiration call can help you get clear about your goals, uncover hidden challenges that may be hindering your progress, discover steps you can take today to move toward accomplishing your goals, and you'll leave the session feeling renewed, re-energized, and inspired to take action. Visit WeRiseMovement.com and schedule your free insight and inspiration call today. That's WeRiseMovement.com. All right, so we are back with Julia Black, and it is time for True Talk. Julia, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Well, we spent a little time talking the other day about reading and all the wonderful things that it does for you and why it's so important. And, you know, we hit on a few things. You know, one of them was, of course, well, from my perspective, you know, and yours as, as, a, as an editor as well, you know, understanding the language and things of that nature. But there's much more to um, what reading does for us, right? Yeah, there's actually really a lot more. Um, one of the things, one of the most interesting things, um, I think, recently, um, is they've proven um, with some scientific studies that reading, um, reading books helps children and people in general learn empathy and learn how people are feeling and how to, how to better um, acknowledge other people's feelings. Um, that's one thing. I think there's, the, there's kind of a logical stuff too, just with increasing knowledge, um, that kind of a thing. Um, for me, I was always a giant, giant fan of novels. I always had my head in some kind of fictional book. Uh, and as I got, as I majored in English and started teaching and started reading more, I realized that for me, uh, I, most of my learning about how I interact with the world came from novels is that it was a lot easier for me to learn from other people's mistakes. If I had my nose in a book, um, because there was no way that I was going to be able to make so many mistakes that I learned as many lessons as I could from just reading a lot of different types of novels and learn from the characters mistakes. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 definitely. Definitely. And in fact, that reminds me of something that my daughter always, my, my middle child in particular, is always reading, constantly reading. And I think that for her, sometimes I think that's one of the connections is not just kind of the escapism of uh, novels, but also kind of seeing how other people feel about things. And that's why, particularly, I think for uh, like middle, middle school age and high school kids, reading different types of books, different types of fiction books in particular, really does help them kind of come into who they are as people. You know, there are always those books that 
kind of changed your life or really changed your outlook on things or really colored the way that you view the world. And I think that's the prime time when that happens. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think there's a lot, of, and particularly with um, kind of middle school age books, there are so many really good ones that have been out in the last, that have come out in the last 20 years. Um, I think that really did, that, that really have gotten a lot of students kind of back into reading, um, or at least turn them on to reading the Harry Potter series, um, the whole Hunger Games series, um, you know, well, and you have the, the Inkheart series is another one too. Um, oh, I haven't heard of that one. Oh yeah. That's by a German author. Mm. Uh, and, and my kids were, were heavy into the Inkheart series. Yeah, there's a lot. There really is. I mean, there's the traditional ones too, right? You, I mean, when, when I was a kid, it was kind of the Nancy Drew Babysitter's Club. Um, <laughs> you know, there were all of these kinds of different mystery type things. Um, you, ha- you know, there was a lot of Catherine Patterson and, you know, A Wrinkle in Time and a lot of different books that really did suck me in um, and kind of... Um, got me thinking about the world in a different way. And when I, you know, and I, I grew up in a, you know, in, in suburban Southern California. So I wasn't downtown LA, you know, I wasn't kind of in the city um, and lived a relatively kind of sheltered existence where I was. Um, And reading really did kind of open things up for me and got me to, you know, experience things in a way that I couldn't in my suburban Southern California town. Well, you know what, for me, I mean, it's funny, I I love Nancy Drew and all that too. In fact, my first cookbook was a Nancy Drew cookbook, (laughs) uh, just for the record. Um, But I loved the classics. I really, I used to love sitting down and reading Shakespeare, um, particularly the comedies. Mm -hmm. I loved Jane Eyre. I loved, you know, Edith Wharton. I love, you know, I loved, I loved yeah. all of that kind of stuff. You know, classic American and classic British lit yeah. is what I read a lot of. Maybe because that's just, you know, Wuthering Heights. You know, my yeah. mom gave me all of those, and I used to love short stories by O. Henry and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And O. Henry, in particular, from a short story perspective, was really good. It kind of some of the stories about how people feel you know, and, and, and getting into each other's uh, space, kind of understanding one another. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I like the dark stuff, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. you know, you go through your, angsty, great, yeah. your angsty teens. Yeah, and see, those for me didn't really, those, those were introduced to me in high school, and I did kind of fall in love with them at that point. And I was also, and that, you know, Withering Heights and Edgar Allan Poe and kind of the darkness of those actually got me into true crime novels. Um, oh, well. Which, uh, and actually, not true crime novels, but true crime books. Um, And my mom, you know, didn't care. She, my mom, just cared that I was reading. She didn't care what it was, you know. Right. (laughs) Well, and that is important. Yeah. Really important. Yeah, it was. You know, and it was. So we'd walk into a we'd walk into a bookstore, um, or a library, and I'd say, "Can I, you know, can I read these?" And she's like, "Yeah." you want to read them that's fine you know and it, and it was and it was a big difference between that and kind of what some of my other friends were experiencing where a lot of their parents put their foot down about no you can't read that that's inappropriate um 
you know, and as oh, long yeah. as, you know, and as long as they did, you know, and, and my, for me, as long as I didn't have nightmares and it wasn't keeping me up at night, I read it. <laughs> well, it you know what's funny when you say that? It made me think of the Judy Bloom I'd forgotten. I used to love reading Judy Bloom. Mm -hmm. And I actually had, you know, accidentally left the Ju one of the Judy Bloom books at a friend's house. And her dad came over to the house very angry about that book. And I was like, okay, uh, <laughs> you know, what? I was I was stunned that anybody could be that upset about what really I thought was harmless and really I think valuable for us to read, mm -hmm. especially since, since parents didn't talk about anything back then. So, right. um, but I think reading the books is it does it's great in terms of our brain development and 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 things like that. But also for me, the big thing is expanding our vocabulary mm -hmm. and helping us to understand language. And that's one of the places that you know that I have an issue with these days. We've mm -hmm. talked about this offline a, a lot about how I feel like sometimes you ask a question, particularly of people in different service positions or, you know, like, you know, I was dealing with different government stuff this week, you know, and all that. And you ask a question and they're answering everything except what you asked. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, is this because you do not understand the words coming out of my mouth? You know, or what, I don't understand what the communication gap is. Cause if I ask you what is essentially a yes or no question, why am I getting this other kind of answer that doesn't even address what I'm asking you? Yeah. I worry that because we are, I think we're reading a lot in this country now, but we're reading very short, not very in-depth, not very challenging pieces online quickly, which is great for gathering mm -hmm. information quickly, but not really great for helping us to think and making us really think through what something means. And I yeah, and I think part of, part of that too, I think when it comes to reading stuff online, um, and pretty, when we're talking about news stories, I mean, every, every, every news agency, every media agency has a bias. And if you're not taught how to read for those kind of loaded words, um, and so, you know, I can generally read an article and tell you if they lean left or if they lean right, lean right, or if, or what the bias is on the author, even if, even if they're leaving out stuff that I, that I think is kind of an important part of it. Um, but reading anything, whether it's a novel or a nonfiction book or, um, you know, even magazine articles or, you know, anything really, um, it's going to kind of open your mind, get your vocabulary going, like you said, um, you know, and kind of get you to think. I think it's important to read things that are, that make you stop and think for a minute and make you ponder about whether or not you agree with it. Um, you know, and that, you know, that's something that I think a lot of people just don't do. They, they read something and they regurgitate it um, in a, to somebody else or in a, in a debate or, you know, a, you know, kind of a political debate or whatever without stopping to really think about whether they agree with it or, um, or whether it seems plausible. Well, I think there's a more fundamental issue. I mean, there's the whether or not you agree with it, but I think the more important issue is whether or not you understand it. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to, 
I think that's really where my concern is. It's less about whether or not you agree with an issue because I read tons of stuff and I, there's some things I don't care one way or another what the author's mm-hmm. perspective is. You know, I'm reading it just to hear what somebody else has to say, you know, mm-hmm. just to, you know, just to, oh, okay, that's an opinion that's out there. Okay, cool. I, I don't really have to agree or disagree. I can just observe something, but the question is, do I understand what they're saying? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I think people are reading things and not even understanding them. So that's why you will have such vehement views on issues sometimes where people seem confused. I, I think there's a lot of that going on. People talk about misinformation. I'm not sure if it's really an issue of misinformation so much as not understanding the information that's actually out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course there is misinformation as well, but I mean, I think there's a huge issue of us just not understanding what we're reading. Mm-hmm. And of course, for all the folks who want to be writers, this is really important because you really do need to be an astute reader. It's not saying that you have to spend every minute of every day reading, but you do have to be an astute reader in Mm -hmm. order to be a good writer, I think, or to become better at the craft of writing. Yeah. Learn a lot about storytelling. You learn about Mm -hmm. engaging people. You learn what you like and what you don't like in terms of style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's important to read things kind of going along with that, read things that go out of your comfort zone, you know, particularly if you read novels, like I was, I was really big, kind of a snobby reader. Um, and only, you know, for, you know, I, I went through these phases where first I only read, you know, kind of literature, things that I deemed as literature, you know, Russian novelists or, you know, the Bronte sisters or Shakespeare or Chaucer or something like that. Um, I never really went into like the fantasy genre and never, you know, when I was teaching, I taught high school for a few years. And when I was teaching, all of my students were reading Harry Potter and I kind of refused to, to read any fantasy up to that point. And so many of them were reading it that I said, okay, I need to stop and sit down and read this and read this series. And I completely fell in love with it. And it turned me on to fantasy and some, and don't get me wrong. Some of it are, some of it's terrible. Um, Some of the stuff, some of the fantasy books that I've read were really, really terrible. Um, But some of them were really good. Um, And the same thing kind of goes with any non, you can, you can apply the same principles to any kind of nonfiction, whether it's a biography or an autobiography or a memoir or true crime or, you know, or a self-help book, um, you know, or a book or a book that is trying to prove a theory. Um, you know, all of those things can kind of get you thinking to try and understand. And if you can't understand it, if you, if you start reading something and you don't understand it, then that's fine. Then try and talk to somebody to see if you can, you know, understand it more, um, you know, or do some research online or see what other people's theories are. Or, you know, there's a, a lot of different ways that you can, that can help you understand the things that you're reading. Well, and I think you you actually hit on something really important because we're, you know, if we were to give three main takeaways, and this is, I think, particularly for parents, but really for anybody who wants to encourage reading or wants to read themselves, you know, read more themselves, 
I think the biggest thing you said there was it kind of doesn't matter what you're reading, but it you do need to read. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to meet people where they are. So like my daughter really loved fantasy. So, you know, go nuts, read fantasy. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people, you know, and I, I mentioned this particularly because in my business, I deal with urban authors primarily. And a lot of the street lit, um, although that's becoming less and less of the work that I do as I'm getting more um, business people and more uh, coaches and folks like that, but the urban books are sometimes looked down upon. In fact, I remember going to um, a book panel at a library in Atlanta a few years back and it was African-American authors, and some of them really resented being put in the urban book section because they felt they were mainstream authors as opposed to urban authors, even though urban is a marketing term. They're not an actual, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, more than anything else, it's used as a marketing term. And I thought that was really interesting, but it's because they were kind of looking down on the whole concept of urban lit or street lit. And in some ways, I think that that is such an unfair approach to the literature, you know, because people have the right to tell their own stories and not have other people tell their their stories for them. Uh And one of the things that, you know, I love about technology is this democratized communications and it has made it so that regular people can tell their stories. And this Mm -hmm. is why we saw the rise of urban lit seriously. Yes, we had uh, a lot of things starting even before self-publishing where Zane and folks like that were out there, you know, basically writing books on bulletin boards, but Mm -hmm. just recognizing that the technology has allowed stories that otherwise might never have gotten Mm -hmm. out, or if they had gotten out, they'd have gotten out in a truly distorted way to be told by the people who are experiencing them or who are watching them or who are imagining them. And that's mm-hmm. really cool. And so even if people are reading things like I would call trashy novels, because, you know, I love trashy novels. Mm-hmm. One of my secret vices. Yeah, um, mine too. <laughs> I, I think that we should we should embrace that. Let people read what they want to read and let them engage and let them think about it for themselves. Well, yeah, and that, you know, when you're talking about technology, I mean, that, 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 yeah, urban lit, that's kind of how urban lit, or that is how urban lit kind of came to be, or how it, how it had, had its kind of resurgence, but there's a lot of books that have started, like, fan, fan fiction, I'm kind of, I'm baffled, like, I am fascinated with fan fiction, particularly, there's a lot of Jane Austen fan fiction that started out on, on a, Jane Austen bulletin board that turned into very well-written, published, you know, really good novels that are, you know, and I'm like, wow, and this just started because they found, they found this corner of the internet with a bunch of people who really love Jane Austen. You know, yeah. I think that's, I actually think is as silly as it is, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I think, started out as a fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't care for zombies, so I was. I'm not. I'm not really either, and I, <laughs> and, 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 and I and I have read that book, and it and it didn't do much for me. But it's but there's a corner of the world that was very excited that this book came out. Um. Yeah, yeah. Well, I you know that gets to the second point of this though is that mm-hmm. 
people do read differently now. Yeah. And so it does require us to think about the way we write differently. And that's a challenge for me because I know sometimes I have a tendency to use what they call a $5 word where a $2 <laughs> word will do. And that just happens sometimes. It's an accident. I don't mean to uh, upset anybody when I do it. But <laughs> there, there's something to be said about that. We even see it mm-hmm. in politics where our politicians used to use college-level grammar, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and vocabulary or co- college-level vocabulary, I guess, would be the better way to say that. And now they don't. That's why we see some politicians being very popular these days is because mm-hmm. uh, that started being perceived as talking down to people when it was really just, well, I've got this education and this is the way I talk. You know, as opposed to now it's perceived a lot of times as talking down to people. And that's partly because we read differently now. We communicate differently now. It's much less formal. Well, and, you know, the evolution of language has been interesting the last, um, really, the last 15, 20 years is that it was, you know, in the 80s and the early 90s, it was perfectly okay um, to have, you know, to expect that in a, in a, in an atmosphere, even like if you think about a business, the business world and the business world in an atmosphere where everybody's college educated, that there would be larger words and it would be a more um, college level writing style, whether it was in a business letter or a, an internal memo or something like that. What we found in the last 20 years or so is that it's gotten simpler and simpler. There's a lot of, you know, when I was a technical writer, I saw a lot of this. My goal part of the reason why I was hired as a technical writer was to make sure that all of this really technical language that people were writing was actually pared down so that the lay reader could understand it. Um, And even in the, even in the 12 years that I was doing that, there was a, it it became more, you know, when I started, it was, well, we should assume that everybody's got about a high school level education. That's where we're writing for. And at the end, Um, we were looking at a seventh or eighth grade level. And those were the instructions that we were given from the agencies that were telling us to write it. So things, you know, even punctuation has been scaled down. The amount of writing has been scaled down. The, the, the length of the words, the length, you know, the number of syllables using has been scaled down. Um, All that stuff has kind of changed, but that's even the idea with the blog, right? The blog is, in and of itself, a very short snippet. It's a small little, here's what I learned today. Maybe a little background story, um, but the blog was created to be a very short internet level snippet. And I think the internet is actually the the impetus of what created all of this. Well, yeah, but at the same time, like you were mentioning about the average reading level of an American adult is is sixth and seventh grade right now, as of my last time that I did the research on that. And that was the case before the internet. So the the real issue with the writing style and the speaking style in the country has shifted because of that. But the irony of what you're saying about blogs is that now long form blogs and long tail keywords uh, are driving the internet a whole lot more than those short articles, even though the short articles still play a a vital role. So you're seeing kind of an interesting uh, shift there as well. 
But if your average reading level is about sixth or seventh grade here in the United States, writers have to take that into consideration when they're, you know, creating their, their manuscripts so that they need to target their audience. So if their audience is going to be the average American adult, they need to keep in mind that they're probably writing not much higher than the reading level that they would use for, you know, the average sixth grader. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, whenever I'm writing something, because I'm one of those people that uses lots of $5 words as well, um, and that has everything to do with the fact that there's always a book in my hand or in my purse or somewhere with me. Um, but what I've, what I've started doing whenever I'm writing something is that I'll write it, I'll give my kind of first draft, and then my second draft I go through and I simplify it. And I cut things out that I think are unnecessary and I cut out phrases that don't really need to be there um, and kind of simplify it drastically so that when you, you know, when I'm writing something, uh, it, it doesn't sound significantly de different than when it started as much as it's just there's a lot fewer words. Well, and that's, yeah. That's probably the most important thing. I think that's all, well, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm also seeing that novels are getting a little shorter unless you're doing high, what we might call high literature. Yeah. Um, the average novel size that I'm seeing is going down. And even for um, nonfiction, I'm seeing the book size going down to closer to 50,000 words, whereas the average was 70 to 90,000, yeah. particularly for novels. So. Just, I guess the main takeaways here, guys, is that as far as we want to get people reading, we want all of us to be reading. These days with the technology, you can carry hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of books on your phone, on your mm -hmm. tablet device, what have you. You have tons of reading material available to you. Make sure you're reading something. Mm -hmm. Make sure you read what you enjoy. Meet people yeah. where they are. Read what you enjoy. Don't get hung up on, oh, I've got to read this particular book because somebody said this is at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, even though I do love looking at what's on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, make sure that as we are writing for people, that people we understand that people read differently now. We may want to keep our chapters shorter if we're writing books. We may want mm -hmm. to keep our articles a little shorter unless we're purposely doing those long form articles for the internet. Uh -huh. And then lastly, make sure that we're writing for the appropriate reading level in order to make sure that our audience can understand us. Anything else you want to add to that? No, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, and when we talk about reading, reading things that interest you and start where you are, like that can be anything, that can be magazines, that can be romance novels, that can be, you know, anything. Start, start reading something. And if you don't know what you're interested in, think about the kinds of movies and TV shows that you like. Um, and walk into your local library and talk to a librarian and say, these are the, I, I want to start reading more. These are the, these are the kinds of movies that I like, or these are documentaries or TV shows or whatever. And they'll be able to point you in a direction. Um, you know, their, their, their job is to make sure that they understand all, all kinds of, all different kinds of books. So they'll be able to point you in a, in a direction. Um, and hopefully you can, you can kind of get started and actually, you know, and don't be, don't be ashamed of what you're reading either. If, if what you want to read is a romance novel, then 
read a romance novel. I mean, what, 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 what I, one of the things that I thought was most interesting about the whole e-reader, um, what, what's been happening since e-readers came out was that the, is that there's been a much higher desire for romance novels because all of a sudden people didn't, they weren't embarrassed by what they were reading because no one could tell what they were reading. <laughs> they were reading it on their tablet and they didn't, you know, you didn't see the cover of the romance novel, um, you know, for anybody to judge them. So, you know, if, if you're worried about other people judging you, then get yourself an e-reader. They're relatively inexpensive these days and you can get everything on there. My dad gets his newspaper on his, um, you can get magazines on there now. There's all kinds of stuff that you can get on an e-reader that will get you started. Or download to your phone, you know. Or download to your buys, phone, yeah. Download to your phone, yeah. Apps. All the same. So, mm -hmm. so there, and the library also. Um, most of the libraries also have ebook apps that you can um, actually check out ebooks. So check those out. Make sure you talk to your librarian and get reading, guys. Get yeah. reading. Thanks, Julia, for joining me on True Talk. Thanks for having me. I love being here. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com, M-I-C-H-E-L-E-B-A-R-A-R-D.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you guys tune into the show on January 4th, 2019. Can you believe it's 2019 already almost, guys? My guest will be Maryland State Senator Barbara Robinson. And you can find us every other Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at bit.ly, bit.ly, slash, somewhere in the middle radio. You can also find us at bit.ly, bit.ly, slash, somewhere in the middle podcast. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all, and happy holidays.